Uh, since a lot of the information is going to be sort of reinforced by what Stephen's going to say, we're going to move on to the next presentation and then hold your um, questions until the end of the next presentation. So Stephen Johnson uh, from the University of Colorado is going to be talking about initiating interviral therapy, particularly what to start and how to monitor. Thank you very much. Everyone hear me in the back? So uh, I think Dr. Sag gave a nice background on the biology of uh, HIV infection, the uh, pathogenesis, and the rationale for therapy. So we're going to now talk a little bit more specifically about the initiation of antiretroviral therapy, uh, how to start therapy, and how to monitor. Uh, this is uh, my disclosure. And what I want to do is uh, is apply uh, updated guidelines on the initi in initiation of antiretroviral therapy, talk a bit about individual characteristics that can affect choice of therapy, and then uh, talk a bit about uh, laboratory monitoring. Now, I need to look here if our panelists kind of going in and out here. The, uh, the, the guidelines for the use of antiretroviral agents, so the, the main source, of course, is the DHHS guidelines, and these are updated uh, periodically, and in fact, they're going to be updated uh, in the very near future. But as Dr. Sag had mentioned, antiretroviral therapy is recommended for all individuals to uh, reduce the risk of disease progression, but also to prevent the transmission of HIV. There is a third bullet in the guidelines that talks about that the person with HIV should be willing and able to commit to therapy and understand the benefits and risks of therapy. I want to just say something about that final point. I think, you know, five years ago, we may have spent quite a bit of time, weeks or months, preparing the person for antiretroviral therapy. I think the current thinking is to shrink that down, uh, to start uh, more quickly. Many programs have, uh, have rapid uh, programs to start antiretroviral therapy, but I think the approach to kind of uh, get patients on therapy in a relatively quick fashion is, is, is a newer, uh, important concept. So as we've mentioned, uh, antiretroviral therapy uh, exists in seven different uh, mechanistic classes. Actually, three of them uh, involve uh, the inhibition of entry of the uh, virus into the cell targeting CD4 fusion or the CCR5 co-receptor. That's really not that important for initiating antiretroviral therapy. What is important is the, uh, the steps to block reverse transcription because most of our therapies involve re reverse transcriptase inhibitors with a third component, a third drug, either an NNRTI, a integrase inhibitor, or a uh, protease inhibitor. So Dr. Sag had an amazing slide, and I have my own amazing slide that kind of depicts the uh, development of medications over time, including not, not just single drugs, but actually fixed dose combinations and single tablet regimens. And uh, the, uh, Dr. Sag and I also have one other thing in common is that we started uh, practicing before this graph even started. So it's been really an amazing uh, development over the last 32 years such that we have uh, a chart like this where you have uh, uh, reverse transcriptase inhibitors, protease inhibitors, NNRTIs, entry inhibitors, uh, and we have a lot, a lot of different combination antiretrovirals. The, it's been a remarkable two years as well, uh, despite how good antiretroviral therapy has been, the development of new drugs continues. 
Uh, not all of these are relevant for the initiation of therapy, but I, I wanted to put this together just as a uh, illustration of what's just happened over the last two years. And at the bottom of the slide, I'm anticipating the FDA approval of the injectable antiretrovirals uh, as they're expected to be acted on uh, later this month. So let's talk about initiation, initiating antiretroviral therapy. And I want to make a few points. Most of the guidelines for initial therapy are actually based on, on well-designed, randomized clinical trials. The, there have been many studies to kind of establish our current approach to treatment. The current guidelines heavily emphasize integrase inhibitor-containing regimens. INSTI stands for integrase strand transfer inhibitor, which is a specific mechanism of action. And, uh, but, but integrase inhibitors are, uh, are critical to initial therapy. Still, there are some individual characteristics that are important with uh, uh, choosing the appropriate initial regimen. And as I mentioned, uh, uh, many programs recommend rapid initiation of antiretroviral therapy. On the next two slides, I've actually had uh, uh, list some of the clinical factors, laboratory factors, and then personal factors that impact on the timing and choice of initial therapy. I think this has gotten easier over time because of the development of very uh, safe and, uh, and, and, and easier regimens. Hepatitis B co-infection, though, is an important clinical factor, as about 5% of people living with HIV may have act active hepatitis B, so that needs to be uh, uh, factored into the choice of, of antiretroviral therapy. Uh, tuberculosis and the presence of other opportunistic infections can actually impact on the timing of therapy. So if you're starting therapy in the setting of an active opportunistic infection, please, uh, re please uh, refer to the guidelines. Uh, and there's a number of other important issues that are listed on this slide. There are some laboratory factors that, that we use in terms of choosing antiretroviral therapy. But as Dr. Sag mentioned, uh, we, uh, although we measure the CD4 count and the HIV RNA level, we really are, uh, are placing everybody on antiretroviral therapy regardless of those uh, two results. Uh, HIV resistance testing is still part of the initial treatment of HIV. Uh, I think it's a bit controversial these days about the cost effectiveness given the rise of integrase inhibitors, but, uh, but it's still... Uh, a recommended initial test. There are other factors, such as the preference of the uh, person living with HIV. Despite the fact that providers look at clinical trials, we all tend to develop our own uh, uh, preferences and uh, other factors as listed on this slide. So when you look at the DHHS guidelines, you'll see that there is a rating scheme uh, here depicted on the slide, A, B, and C, and then one, two, and three. And as you'll see as we go over the guidelines, many of our guidelines are A1, that is a strong recommendation based on randomized clinical trials. There are two sources of, of, of treatment guidelines. Uh, the DHHS guidelines, I think, are the official guidelines and are, uh, are listed on your left. And you can see many of these uh, recommendations have A1 uh, recommendations and uh, and on the right side are the IAS USA guidelines, which are uh, um, uh, an alternative set of guidelines that are updated every two years around the time of the World AIDS Conference. 
Now, I do want to mention briefly, and Dr. Sag mentioned this, that there is a new kind of two-drug regimen that has been uh, uh, reported within the last uh, couple years that looks like a new two-drug regimen that, that looks equivalent to some of our three-drug regimens. There are some caveats with this regimen as listed on this slide, and uh, this regimen will be discussed in greater detail during the conference. I can tell you that the DHHS guidelines are actually undergoing uh, uh, an update in the very near future and will address the role of this two-drug therapy, both in the initiation of uh, HIV therapy and also uh, in switch regimens. Now, I mentioned there are some individual characteristics that may affect the initial choice of ART. Uh, a lot of you probably aren't starting with a ropivirine-containing regimen but there are some specific issues if the CD4 count is less than 200 or the viral load is greater than 100,000. Uh, the drug Abacavir has uh, uh, one limitation, uh, hypersensitivity, and so HLA B5701 testing has to be done before that uh, uh, drug is used. Um, if you're starting antiretroviral therapy before resistance test results, we do not use NNRTI-containing regimens. And you can see here uh, several other kind of specific uh, recommendations. I mentioned the issue of hepatitis B co-infection. There we need to use a combination of tenofovir, either formulation with either 3TC or FTC in order to adequately control hepatitis B viral replication. The guidelines also have uh, what not to use. I suspect that, that, that you won't get into this set of issues. But there are some drugs that we've used in the past. There are some approaches we've used in the past that have been well studied and uh, are, uh, are no longer recommended. All right, so let's uh, move on, and we're going to talk about an ARS question. So this is a 33-year-old uh, male who is diagnosed with HIV infection in the clinic, uh, in the emergency department, and actually comes to you on the same day anxious to start antiretroviral therapy. So the most appropriate ART regimen for a rapid start on the same day would be uh, the bictegavir with uh, tenofovir alafenamide and emtricitabine. Uh, the second is dolutegavir abacavir lamivudine. The third is dolutegavir plus emtricitabine. Uh, the fourth is uh, afavirin's tenofovir DF and emtricitabine, or maybe you're thinking of something else. So if you can uh, vote here and... to stop the song, I actually asked for Beatles. So, so actually, 94% uh, are you correct? Uh, let's just walk through the other answers. Uh, Dolutegavir, Abacavir, Lamivudine, you would need to do the HLA testing ahead of time. Uh, some labs turn around pretty quickly, but uh, typically takes several days. This new two-drug regimen of Dolutegavir plus emtricitabine, uh, we really want resistance test results with a two-drug regimen. We want to make sure that uh, the uh, virus is susceptible to both. Uh, Afavirin's uh, tenofovir DF emtricitabine, uh, NNRTI mutations are the most likely transmitted uh, uh, resistance mutations, and uh, fortunately, no one thought of anything else, so that's good. 
So rapid ART, I know that uh, Dr. Sag mentioned this, but I wanted to mention kind of the, the rise of this because uh, many clinical programs are doing this now, and it, this will be part of our uh, discussion uh, during the conference. Uh, the, the program that I kind of focused on first, that was presented first, is the program in San Francisco where they had this citywide initiative to link all new cases into care within five days of diagnosis and to start ART at the first visit. This was initiated uh, in 2015, and they were able to, to show here, uh, as illustrated on this graph, in terms of diagnosis to care, first care visit to ART, uh, ART to viral load less than 200, and then diagnosis to a viral load less than 200, they were able to show uh, marked declines uh, in 2015 and 2016 con compared to the historical 2013 and 14. So the benefits of rapid initiation uh, that have been put forth is a faster time to viral suppression, faster time for the person to move to good health, less chance for a person to transmit the infection to others, improved engagement in care, and I think this is important, actually sends a clear message that treatment is needed in everyone throughout the course of the infection. And these are some of the regimens that you could consider for rapid start. And the features of these regimens is that they're active against hepatitis B, very likely would be active in the setting of some pre-existing HIV drug resistance, and then don't require HLA-B5701 testing. All right, so let's move on to our second ARS question. A 27-year-old woman with newly diagnosed HIV infection presents for care. CD4 count is 420. HIV RNA level is 150,000. Testing reveals no evidence of hepatitis B or HIV resistance. She is sexually active and reports inconsistent use of birth control. She is anxious to start ART. Which regimen would you choose? So A is bictegavir, tenofovir, alafenamide, and emtricitabine. B is the dolutegavir, abacavir, lamivudine. C is dolutegavir plus FTC. And then D is raltegavir plus uh, TDF-FTC. Yeah, so the majority of you uh, uh, chose raltegavir plus TDF-FTC, which I would argue is, is, the, uh, is the best answer there. I can tell by the uh, absent uh, responses with dolutegavir uh, that, that you're familiar with some of the issues that, that have occurred with uh, dolutegavir that I'll mention in a moment. Uh, but I would mention that, that bigtegavir is, is a... Uh, is a drug that is similar to dolutegavir and for which there are no uh, safety data in pregnancy. And this is going to be discussed more uh, during the conference. So just to mention briefly here, uh, neural tube defects detected in four out of 429 infants born to mothers on dolutegavir at conception. This was the initial report. Subsequent reports have put this risk down to about 0.3% and there are ongoing studies to define the risk with more certainty. So dolutegavir appears to be safe when started after 12 weeks of pregnancy. I just want to emphasize that there are no data on uh, bictegravir. Um, 
raltegravir appears to be safe in pregnancy, and one of our uh, presentations during the conference will go into this in, a, in much more detail. But it does bring up the subject of limitations of ART. I think uh, limitations of ART are less than they used to be in terms of drug toxicity, drug interactions, drug resistance. I think adherence is easier with single tablet regimens. We can argue whether cost is, has improved or not. This is also going to be discussed during the conference. And of course, as mentioned, uh, none of our regimens are curative. So just a few of the issues that uh, are, are coming up with some of our most commonly prescribed rec uh, uh, medications in initial therapy. Of course, tenofovir DF, uh, there is concerns for renal toxicity and osteopenia. Uh, tenofovir alafenamide, there are new concerns about weight gain. Abacavir, of course, uh, the hypersensitivity. And then also weight gain with uh, uh, dolutegavir and bictegavir. And this will also be discussed more uh, during the conference. I just want to mention the abacavir hypersensitivity because I think this is an elegant uh, set of research that really solved this problem. When abacavir initially came out, uh, one of the difficulties was the hypersensitivity, which was a, a very severe reaction, fever, rash, gastrointestinal symptoms, uh, constitutional symptoms, respiratory symptoms. And there were actually fatalities uh, with uh, rechallenge with abacavir. And it turns out that individuals who have a specific allele, HLA B5701, uh, and uh, have approximately a 50% risk of an abacavir hypersensitivity reaction, whereas individuals that don't have that allele uh, have less than 1% risk of an abacavir hypersensitivity reaction. So I think the ability to test for this particular uh, allele has, has essentially, for the most part, erased the hypersensitivity issue, and I think it's a pretty elegant example of pharmacogenomics. Now, drug-drug interactions are, are uh, an important issue, uh, both with if protease inhibitors are used as the third component and if NNRTIs. One of the benefits of our new integrase inhibitors, particularly dolutegavir, and uh, bictegavir is relatively few drug interactions. Um, I like to use this slide to kind of illustrate the impact of drug-drug interactions using one of our protease inhibitors, adazanavir, as an example. This is actually looking at uh, plasma trough concentrations. And you can see on the left there is just a standard dose of adazanavir unboosted. We boost it with ritonavir, and you can see the benefit of, of boosting. Uh, by raising the, the trough levels of adazanavir. But then somebody prescribes rifampin, and despite the boosting of ritonavir, now the trough level plummets. Um, and if you add omeprazole, you also reduce the, uh, the uh, um, trough levels. Tenofovir actually reduces unboosted adazanavir, and you overcome that at least partially with boosting. So just a, an example with one drug of how concomitant drugs can interfere uh, with uh, the success of therapy. So when you initiate therapy, it's important to look at the concomitant medications. Now, drug resistance is, is a potential issue. I think it's less of an issue in the current era of where we're using integrase inhibitors. Uh, acquired drug resistance occurs on therapy. Primary drug resistance uh, is acquired from a person with resistant virus. And we use one of two technologies, HIV genotyping and HIV phenotyping. And here's the latest information that I could find on transmitted drug resistance 
This is from 2016 and was presented earlier this year at the Conference on Retrovirus Infections. You can see in terms of transmitted drug resistance, that is resistance that's present at baseline, 19% uh, of individuals had some form of resistance, but most of it was NNRTI uh, followed by NRTI and protease inhibitor. And so uh, integrase inhibitor uh, resistance was very infrequent. Now HIV resistance tests are, are part of the initial panel of laboratory tests. We typically do a standard RNA resistance test. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the DNA genotyping and whether that has any role when we talk about uh, switches and antiretroviral treatment failure uh, during the course. The IAS USA, which is one of the organizers of this uh, conference, uh, is really the source for drug-resistant mutation information. And so this is uh, an example of the type of data that you can see uh, on their website looking at specific mutations and the resistance they confer to specific drugs. Of course, standard resistance tests that you order typically provide you with the uh, answers in terms of whether mutations are significant or not. Now, adherence to antiretroviral therapy, of course, is critical, and fixed-dose combinations have helped. So this is a, a subset of our uh, medication chart that just shows all of the different medications that contain two or more uh, medications. Uh, some of these are not uh, full single-tablet regimens. Some of these are used with other drugs. But this is really remarkable that we have 15 different compounds that can provide two or more drugs. And this has really led to kind of simplicity in prescribing, which has improved adherence, which has improved outcome. So I want to end a little bit by talking about how to monitor antiretroviral therapy uh, once uh, we get people on, on a regimen. Of course, there are baseline laboratory tests that we do, and these are listed on the slide in terms of CBC chemistry panel, a fasting lipid panel, and a urinalysis. Uh, I will mention here that, uh, that uh, this information comes from the DHHS guidelines, and uh, this part of the guidelines is also being updated in the, uh, in the very near future to reflect new guidelines uh, on lipid management and uh, screening for diabetes. So look for that uh, um, in the very near future. So baseline laboratory testing also includes the CD4 lymphocyte count, the HIV RNA level, and of course resistance testing. We prefer genotyping over HIV phenotyping. And, and the resistance testing is typically for protease and reverse transcriptase unless there is a concern that integrase uh, resistance uh, could be present. And there are other tests that you would consider. Um, uh, probably with some frequency, people are using HLA B5701 testing. I don't think HIV tropism testing is being done much uh, for initial therapy. Of course, part of the initial therapy is also to screen for co-infections that are listed on this slide. I've already mentioned how important hepatitis B status is in terms of choosing and monitoring antiretroviral therapy. Hepatitis C status is also important just because of higher rates of, of liver toxicities with certain medications when given in individuals who are co-infected uh, with hepatitis C. I want to mention a couple things about the, the major laboratory tests to monitor HIV infection, the HIV RNA level, and the CD4 lymphocyte count. And I just want to mention a bit about kind of virologic uh, response because when we're monitoring therapy and we're measuring viral load, 
the term virologic uh, suppression is a confirmed RNA level below the lower limit of detection. Virologic failure is the ability to either, inability to either achieve or maintain uh, suppression of viral replication to an HIV RNA level less than 200, and we typically require a second sample uh, to confirm virologic failure, so two, uh, two values above 200. Uh, incomplete virologic response and virologic rebound as listed on this slide. And then a virologic blip is after virologic suppression, an isolated detectable HIV RNA level that is followed by a return to virologic suppression. And then low-level viremia, which is something that I think we all have to manage frequently in clinical practice, is where you have a detectable HIV RNA, um, which is uh, less than 200, but is not undetectable. And I know the people we take care of are often concerned about these minimal values. Uh, I list here some of these potential causes, intermittent adherence, certainly laboratory error, uh, release of virus from latent reservoirs, but also could represent early virologic failure. So here's your third ARS question. Your patient has well-controlled HIV infection with an HIV viral load less than 20. He is sexually active with his HIV-negative partner. How often would you monitor HIV viral load in order to ensure that there's no risk of HIV transmission? Monthly, every three months, every six months, once a year, or I have a different answer. Smiles as you drift past the flowers that grow so incredibly high. Newspaper taxis appear on the shore, waiting to take you away. All right, so uh, many of you said every three months, and many of you said every six months. I, I don't think we know the the precise answer to this. I think, you know, in terms of the frequency of, of monitoring, uh, I think the guidelines would state that six months is the uh, kind of maximum interval between viral loads to be comfortable. Uh, and so that, um, but, but you could argue every three months. But I, I think this is a way to introduce uh, a table from the DHHS guidelines that, that look at, at the frequency of viral load and CD4 monitoring. And I've reproduced this table for you on this slide. Uh, I'll start with the CD4 count. You know, this is a, this is a number, of course, that, uh, that we have focused on for many years, and it's an important number that the person living with HIV is always interested in. But the truth is, is with the success of therapies, if, if there has been immune reconstitution, actually at some point CD4 monitoring becomes optional. And by the guidelines, uh, if you've been consistently suppressed after two years and your CD4 count is less than 500, then actually continued monitoring of the CD4 count is optional. And unless there is a change in the viral load that's newly detectable or some other important illness like cancer treatment or corticosteroid therapy, something else that might interfere with CD4 count, uh, we're doing these uh, less frequently, and so we're, we're trying to wean, wean uh, folks off of the CD4 count. But the viral load, we think, uh, in people that are consistently suppressed, adherent, that probably the minimum uh, uh, interval is, is every six months. And part of this is the U equals U campaign, the fact that, that people who are undetectable uh, in their bloodstream 
with their HIV viral load have no risk of transmitting to others. So we want to be able to say this with, with some confidence. And so this is where the six months come from. And actually, the, the, the reduction in, in the use of the CD4 lymphocyte count has translated into significant cost savings. This is just one study that's looked at this. And so part of the changes in our laboratory monitoring are to kind of reflect what is actually cost effective uh, and what we really need to manage people now. Now, there are some other laboratory monitoring tests that are done periodically through the course of treatment. And they're listed on this slide, including CBC, chemistry panels, fasting glucose, and, and fasting lipids. But I will mention again that the, uh, the guidelines are going to be updated and are going to have uh, uh, a different approach to the glucose and lipid measurement to kind of keep in line with other national guidelines. So what I've tried to do is go through updated guidelines on the initiation of antiretroviral therapy, some of the individual characteristics that might affect choice of therapy. In saying that, I think most individuals in care are starting on integrase-based uh, therapy. And then we've also described an approach to the clinical and laboratory monitoring of persons uh, on ART. I did want to, to mention uh, uh, some useful internet resources that I think uh, you probably are also aware of. Um, certainly, the aidsinfo.nih.gov is the repository for uh, the important federal guidelines on antiretroviral therapy, opportunistic management, and other aspects of HIV. So that should be a, a site that you visit frequently. I've already mentioned that the IASUSA has alternative ART guidelines, charts of resistance, mutations, and other HIV content. Our Infectious Disease Society of America also has multiple guidelines on HIV management including primary care guidelines. And I can tell you that those primary care guidelines are also being actively updated right now. And then my favorite, uh, my second favorite thing from Liverpool is actually the uh, drug interaction site, uh, which is really an excellent site on drug interactions uh, for HIV drugs. And then I actually want to mention here that the National HIV Curriculum. How many have actually looked or used the uh, National HIV Curriculum? Well, that's great. That's actually more hands than I saw last year. This is really uh, a remarkable uh, document with a lot of great content, so I would encourage you to check that out. And at that point, I think uh, Dr. Sag and Dr. Cheever will return to the stage, and we'll be happy to answer questions or comments. Thank you very much.